Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. I'm here live and we have interesting voices all on tape, so to speak, or on disc. What we're doing tonight is featuring uh, excerpts from a number of the interviews which you find on our webpage of identified as Extension 720 Classics. These run from 10 or 15 years ago down to perhaps two years ago. Such people as Norman Mailer, Carl Lewis, Salman Rushdie, Henry Kissinger, and a passel of Hollywood actors, really significant actors, Kirk Douglas, uh, Tony Curtis, and Charlton Heston, not to mention the great Howard Cosell. All have appeared on this program. All will be heard with some of the pithier comments of the two-hour performances that they gave us. And that's all going to commence right after the update on the evening's news from Kim Gordon. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And here we are. As I told you a moment ago, tonight it's just me and you and a lot of very interesting sound clips from past programs. All of these were full two-hour programs. As regular listeners to the program know, Extension 720 has, for over 30 years, been a main stop on the author tour. It is still in that category, and I'm happy to say that we've got some very interesting authors coming up shortly. But on the lead page of our website, that website available at wgnradio.com, forward slash extension 720. We've got a number of uh, extension 720 classics, as we call them. In fact, we have many more than the ones you see on the first page. If you go, if you just hit the link that says more classics or something like that, you'll get uh, dozens, indeed, uh, hundreds of other such uh, websites or hundreds of other such podcasts, rather, for other programs that are in the classic status. But we thought we'd play some of them tonight, just to give you a taste of what's available on the website. And it's only a taste. Each of them will just be a four- or five-minute excerpt, but enough, surely, to whet your interest and perhaps send you to the webpage to look for the full program, which can be heard just with a click of the wrist, a click of the finger or a twist of the wrist. The first one I want to play for you. Fascinating figure. This is the one program that we were not allowed to advertise in advance. I had a call one day uh, from a publicist in New York whom I knew, uh, representing a particular publishing firm, who said, uh, can you make room for Salman Rushdie on your program three nights from now? I said, of course. And can you uh, not say anything about it in advance? I said, why? They said, because he's still, of course, under threat of death from the fatwa, the death order fixed upon him by the Ayatollah Khomeini. And, of course, I knew that. So he was coming secretly, coming, in fact, with uh, protection. Two people from New Scotland Yard accompanied him and one or two local Chicago police, as I remember it. He was under threat of death. Uh, A fatwa sent out by the Ayatollah Khomeini, who then ruled Iran, had been in rule only for a few years, and which said, any Muslim anywhere in the world should kill Rushdie if they possibly can, because he had said what uh, the Ayatollah felt were some unpleasant things about uh, Muhammad in a recent novel. And if you killed Rushdie, then the world would be yours, and I suppose the 72 virgins waiting for you if they shot you down while you were shooting 
Rushdie done. A pretty weird scenario. It is the case that to this moment, uh, some 20 years after the fact of the issuance of that fatwa, Rushdie, uh, it has never been changed. It has never been reversed, never been withdrawn. However, now he's out in public, and uh, though I think he still moves with some protection when he's out uh, in the larger world rather than in his uh, his digs in London, if that's where he's hiding out much of the time. Fascinating fellow, a very great literary figure in the modern world. Here, then, a few words from Salman Rushdie in conversation way back on January 22nd, uh, 18, uh, 19, I beg your pardon, uh, 1991. You said some years ago, indeed, to a reporter, I presume for a British newspaper, yes, for The Independent, you said... In February of 1990, quote, I make no complaint. I am a writer. I do not accept my condition. I will strive to change it. But I inhabit it. I am trying to learn from it. The condition to which you refer there is the fatwa that was pronounced against you by the Ayatollah Khomeini just a few months before. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that statement is almost five years ago. Um, does it still represent your reconciliation or your attitude towards your very special situation yeah and, and broadly speaking yes i mean i think it's it's important for writers to try and internalize you know what happens to them and then somehow transform it into work and i think that's uh that's certainly something i would i would hope that i was doing i think ironically the strange thing is that the longer this thing goes on the harder it is to stand uh you know one doesn't get used to it you get the opposite of used to it you get more and more sick of it and and I think if it had gone on being the same, uh, it would have been completely intolerable. But I th so I think the reason I've, the reason I, you know, the reason you find me here in reasonable health and condition, uh, is that it hasn't remained the same, and and that we've spent a lot of this, this time pushing back against this threat, and uh, and to an extent anyway, uh, succeeding in 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 getting it to recede. Well, you've tried to get all sorts of politicians and higher politicians, i.e., statesmen to do something about it and to bring pressure on the government of Iran. Mm -hmm. The Ayatollah of sainted memory has gone to his reward, yes. uh, such as it may be, but uh, the government that he left behind him still seem to insist that they want to maintain this death order that they placed upon you, though at times they've suggested perhaps they're reconsidering. Yeah, I mean, actually one of the few reasons for believing in the afterlife is the pleasure of thinking of where the Ayatollah Khomeini may now be. Um, but it's... Uh, it's they've been they've been speaking as is usual with the Iranians uh, with two voices. Um, on the one hand, as you correctly say, they have declined to cancel uh, Khomeini's fatwa. On the other hand, for the last twelve months almost now, they have been repeatedly and with increasing emphasis saying that they consider this to be ancient history and that they do not consider it to be incumbent on them to carry it out and that they have no intention of doing so. I mean, in a very strange way, they're even trying to use uh, Khomeini's words uh, to prove that he never meant it to be carried out. And, and uh, one of the Iranian leaders was heard saying in an interview that, that he remembered talking to Khomeini the day after the fatwa, and he remembered Khomeini saying that there was no need to carry it out. Um, another uh, leader, I think even the president, Rafsanjani, uh, has stated that he knows perfectly well that if Khomeini had ever meant the fatwa to be carried out, then he would have given instructions for the dispatch of assassins, and that since he did not ever give such instructions, he meant it to be only uh, a, a rhetorical flourish. But as I understand it, there have been a number of occasions when the British 
<coughs> Secret Service have come up with evidence that assassins had been dispatched yes, to the UK. Yes, that's quite true. It just goes to show that you can't believe the Iranians. Um, but the, in the interesting thing now is that it seems that the Iranians' economic and indeed, position may be so weak that the pennies dropped and that they have understood that if they're going to get anybody to help them at all, uh, they need to change, uh, to moderate their actions. And I mean, to put it simply, if they want help from uh, Britain and from the European community, they have to stop threatening to kill the citizens of those countries. How fascinating. That's a conversation uh, 10 years ago, uh, in a little bit more than 10 years, January 1991. And no, the situation has not changed. Uh, neither in Iran nor with regard to the fatwa. Uh, Iran remains, uh, to quote Churchill speaking, a mystery wrapped in enigma inside a riddle or something of the sort. Or maybe it isn't very enigmatic or very uh, uh, mysterious anymore. We know that uh, they are committed to a lot of doing a lot of evil in the world and still committed to killing, if they can, Salman Rushdie. At least they haven't said otherwise. Um, coming up next, a man who really has a strong, strong uh, annoyance, more than that, a strong complaint about organized sport and thinks that they are ripping us off in many ways. And he is not at all uh, approving of the way in which the great sports teams in any of the major sports realms are managed. Uh, you'd think that might be some, some uh, aggrieved conservative or maybe, for that matter, some annoyed radical kid no, it is, in fact, a man whom you well know as an ultimate interpreter of sports. He's gone now, but he was with us for many years, and we all enjoyed him and enjoyed his peculiarly rich and charming style. I speak of, well, maybe you'll wait and find out who I speak of. We'll be on to that uh, quotation, that excerpt from a program also from 10 years ago, from April 29th, 1991, after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Yes, if you were listening to my tease and guessed it, uh, it is Howard Cosell, who appeared, as I say, again, about 10 years ago, April of 1991, uh, over 10 years ago now, uh, and uh, complained that the famous sportscasters uh, very often don't tell you the real truth about the way things work. He describes how the average fan is being bamboozled by a powerful money-making machine. And he's very upset as well that salaries have skyrocketed to an absolutely unacceptable level. The inimitable Howard Cosell. Just pursuing my own preoccupations as a psychologist, what does the ordinary American fan get out of his deep involvement in sports? I and mean, sports is a great thing. I like sports. I watch sports some, and I participated in a few things when I was young and vigorous. But what does the ordinary fan who sits there swilling beer, watching all this stuff on television and increasingly paying for it to see it on television, what does he get out of it and what is it doing in his life? It beats me because I think he's being taken and I think it's wrong and I think it's an adverse situation in the society. What does, how does, how does he react when he sees these tremendous salaries being paid? Now, if they're... They depress me. Yeah. If they were, sure, it would depress you. Would depress. Well, I'd like to get three million a year for being for it, doing what I do well. And marginal players, players of uh, very limited ability, get these kinds of monies. Mm -hmm. And now some 
Some of these players are turning to religion. I tell you, the whole thing is so out of whack, it drives me nuts. Because there is still some fire in my belly, and there is still uh, this need to state these points. Yet you wouldn't object uh, if a significant CEO, if Lee Iacocca or somebody like that, or the thousand others who uh, one might name if one knew the names, if they get two million or five million or ten million a year and a bonus of five million to top it off. Frankly, I wouldn't because they're rendering a much greater service to the society in my point of view. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't care if Sinatra gets all that money for for singing uh, with his particular phrasing and everything else. I don't object to that. But I object to uh, Tony Phillips getting how many millions of dollars? I object to that. I think it's wrong, and I think it... But you can't object to Jose Canseco getting what he gets, can you? I don't give a damn what Jose Canseco <laughs> gets. He doesn't thrill me either, no. if you want to know the truth. But uh, Ricky Henderson is a truly great ball player. But I don't consider Ricky Henderson an important element in the society. Well, look, you know how the, you know the counter-argument on this goes, though, Howard. Uh, the owners are making a vast amount of money now with all the new television connections. This, this is a money-making machine. And why shouldn't these guys get uh, the same proportional share? They've always gotten the same proportional share and now winds up to be a million or two million per season. Furthermore, they only have five or six seasons in the sun and then they're used up and they have That's to go back to ordinary labor. not anymore. It simply isn't. Ball players can go ad infinitum. Best example of all immediate reference mm -hmm. is Carlton Fisk, who at 43 is off to one of his greatest seasons. So that's not true anymore. Certainly true in football. In football. It's burned it's, up in five or six years. In football, it's absolutely true. Yeah. It's often less than, than five or six sure, years. Sure, sure. I have deep feelings about the National Football League that I've already expressed. I, it's anathema to me. It really is. But in terms of baseball, I just... Those salaries are so out of whack. And the whole, it, it, look, you're a social uh, uh, psychologist. You know very well what I'm talking about, and you know that I'm right. As a social psychologist, I wonder particularly what the new emphasis on sports, its new role in our life as the central entertainment, more or less passively receive. Most people don't even go out to the game. They watch it on television. You wonder what this is doing to transform our character and to transform our culture. What kinds of Americans are we producing via our sports addiction? It's a very fair question. That's the best question we've discussed. I think it's so delimiting for the society, I think it's sad. That's what I think. I'm entitled to that opinion. There's a word that... <clears throat> uh, occurs and recurs throughout your book, and that word is greed. And you're talking there not about the players, though they are entitled to a little bit of greed, I suppose, reactively. You're talking about the people who run the operation. You're talking about <coughs> those who uh, own the teams, manage the teams, publicize the teams, have tie-ins with the teams, and so on. Uh, but greed, as we were told by... Kirk Douglas's son, Michael Douglas, in a film of the same name, that's as American as apple pie. That's what makes the whole system run. Yes. Marvelous speech by, by the, the son. Yeah. I tell you, as a person, he didn't mean a word of it. I hope you know that. <laughs> Delightful to hear Cosell after 
these years. I guess he's been gone now for about four or five years. Uh, I enjoyed reading him tremendously. Um, I think I share uh, the opinions he expressed. Of course, the salaries have, have increased. They've doubled since we were talking about this 11 years ago, which just makes it all the more relevant. By the way, if you want to get in to give us a quick comment or a question, particularly comments, uh, the lines are open, and, and I'm here. This is live, even though the clips, of course, are not. So the lines are open, 312-591-7200. We'll work in some comments or questions, uh, particularly comments, uh, in between some of the clips that we're listening to. 5917200. Next up, a basic question that you probably wondered about all of your life. What's the sex life of plants really like? Do plants really uh, get a kick out of sex? Because they certainly do have a sex life. They reproduce. Uh, I spoke to Sir David Attenborough, a great broadcaster, a great figure on BBC. But, of course, he was uh, carried on PBS for many, many series, all concerning his explorations of nature one way or another. Uh, and uh, here he is talking with us about the sex life of plants. Cole Porter had a wonderful lyric in one of his songs, birds do it, bees do it, even educated fleas do it. <laughs> Apparently, plants do it as well. Well, if they, if they didn't, they're going to be in trouble. Exactly. So we want to talk about the sex life of plants. Can one say, really, uh, putting it more seriously, that plants have a sex life? They do, of course, reproduce. Yes. Um, I mean, there are male plants and female plants. Uh, but, of course, the idea that, uh, except in fundamental biological principles, that it's got any remote relationship with, uh, with human sex is, of course, nonsense. Um, you call a, a female plant female because it is the kind of a, the gender which has a very few eggs, which... Uh, of yours, uh, which remain with that plant when they are fertilized. And then there are male plants which uh, have stamens and produce pollen in enormous quantities and vast numbers, only one of which is, a, is needed to fertilize the eggs. Just as only one sperm cell Just is needed to fertilize the human ovum. call that male. Right. And then there are some plants where those two things are combined. Hermaphroditic in, in plants, so to speak. Hmm? Hermaphrodite plants, so to speak. That's right, which are, in fact are, are, are a high proportion of, uh, of plants are, yeah. have both, of flowering plants have both. Um, but, they, but there is nonetheless, uh, uh, there are more salacious overtones. I mean, um, <laughs> really, the really engaging one, which is, is not only um, extraordinarily um, ingenious, but really quite funny. Uh, are some of the devices that orchids use to persuade insects to, to fertilize them. Uh, the most engaging, uh, we have some in Britain called bee orchids, so there are quite a lot of different species. Um, and uh, they, each one, imitates a particular kind of bee or wasp. So that the flower actually looks like uh, a bee or wasp settled on a stalk. It uh, has uh, its brown in colour, it's hairy, uh, the hairs point downwards, it has light patches on either side, it has a little knob, shiny knob at the top like a head. But most uh, remarkable of all, it produces a perfume which exactly reproduces the molecules uh, of the perfume uh, emitted by a female wasp when she is sexually receptive. So that a male 
flying around, um, is very sensitive to this smell. And he thinks, wow, this is tremendous. There's a lovely lady. There's a lovely lady sitting on a stalk there. Waiting for me. Waiting for him. So he lands upon her and does his very best vigorously to copulate with her. (laughs) Um, And uh, the the energy uh, that he expends in doing this causes a trigger to snap in the top part of the orchid flower and a hammer comes down loaded with a little blob of of yellow pollen and clouts him on the back of the neck and sticks this gob of pollen on the back of his neck. And when you film it, which we did, uh, and you see it in close-up, you can see the wasp is, is, or bee, is really pretty baffled by this. I mean, if he'd got eyelids, he'd be blinking, you know. He'd be saying, ooh, that was something else. I mean, I didn't expect anything quite like that. And away he goes. And, and, and whether or not he says, that was so sensitive to himself, that was so sensational, I must find another one like it, <laughs> he certainly, the chances are, he's going to land on another orchid. Uh-huh. And the same thing happens again, only this time... The bit that he, he brushes as he lands picks off this pollen from the back of his head. And so fertilization is achieved. And I do think that's pretty engaging. <laughs> Charming, to say the least. A little bit more complicated than how humans do it, um, but maybe it's perfectly comfortable in the, in the plant world. Of course, there's an interaction between plants and insects, isn't it? Uh, we're about to pause for an update on the news. I repeat that we've got the lines open. I see at least one caller waiting. If you have anything you want to say in response to what you've been hearing uh, or any questions about the general bill of fare on the WGN Extension 720 website, uh, the bill of fare for the podcasts, do give us a call, 312-591-7200. And we will return right after the update on the news from... Kim Gordon. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And now comes the moment of truth. Uh, Regular listeners will know that uh, we went through our shakedown last week in the new studios, and the phones haven't always worked the way they're supposed to. Uh, I'm told everything is in order now. We're about to find out as I try to say hello to Dale. Are you there, sir? Uh, Yes, Milt. I'm Please go ahead. Uh, I really appreciate you playing the Howard Corsell uh, thing. I never knew he had these views on the what I think is the overpayment of athlete. Um, I think it's a good thing I think you playing these old shows, especially with uh, guests who might have passed on. Uh, the, like when we did that program, he had just done a whole book, which was extremely critical of organized uh, sport in this country. He was very negative towards just about everything he had ever covered. And every uh, and uh, when the little reference to football, he thought football was a killing operation, which was really inhumane, and it uh, ought to be uh, brought under control and made more civilized or maybe even ultimately faded out. It was an astounding uh, set of in- opinions that I had from him that night. Yeah, uh, you know, and now with his concussion thing, hopefully uh, something will be done with football and uh, I think football is a very uh, chance with baseball as far as more likely to survive. I, I can't see how baseball can keep with the escalating salaries just on the amount of more games that they have and uh, more costs. How is it, I don't know if you know, the Los Angeles Dodgers were just about bankrupt from their past ownership. 
uh, from the McCord family. Yeah. Yet somehow they were able to sell for unheard amounts of money uh, from an investor group headed by Magic Johnson, among others. Are these is this kind of like similar to the government just organized sports just adding the massive that they never will yeah. pay? And- <clears throat> Gee, I'm out of my depth on that. I just don't know much about the sports business. Other people here know a great deal more. One thing I do know, though, as regards the Los Angeles Dodgers, the basic mistake they made a long time ago was to leave Brooklyn. Uh, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. I was once a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. I thank you, sir, for the call. Very glad to have heard from you. We go to the next excerpt. This is one. um, It's it's an interview which we've uh, kept on the front page of the website, and that one is, by the way, wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. <clears throat> it's a conversation that I did with Henry Kissinger back in 2001. And much of it remains uh, uh, significantly still appropriate, I would say. The basic focus in this brief excerpt that just runs for about four minutes is China. And Kissinger, who, of course, was involved in the opening up to China with his secret mission to see um Mao Zedong, before Nixon made his overt and visible visit to Mao Zedong, Kissinger had, and still has, happily, because he's still around and still opinionating very effectively, he had a great deal to say of considerable wisdom about China. So here, Henry Kissinger, the year 2001, on Extension 720. There are those who uh, suggest that the country we are really worried about with regard to a potential nuclear assault is China, which, to be sure, doesn't have a nuclear force equal to that of England or France, let alone of the United States, but they seem to be committing a good deal of scientific effort, if not of, and probably also, of their capital into building a missile force, and they seem to have, one way or another, got their hands on a good deal of American technology to speed them along. Uh, the latter is probably is, is probably true. Uh, I do not believe that the Chinese, uh, my understanding is that the Chinese right now have between 30 and 50 missiles uh, and with single warheads, so it would take them 10 to 15 years to, uh, even then, uh, to get any respectable size. Mm-hmm. I don't think the danger from China is a nuclear attack on the United States. It's uncharacteristic. It, this is a society that has existed for 5,000 years. They defeat their enemies not by a massive sudden assault, but by endurance, but by outlasting them. Uh, So if we get into conflict with China, it is much more likely to be because China, as its strength grows, will insist on being treated by its neighbors with respect and deference, and that gradually this will create a situation where we believe that that hegemony of China over Asia is unacceptable to us, uh, as it should be. It should be unacceptable to us, the hegemony of any country, uh, and that that would lead to a conflict. But I do not believe a conflict that China would ever conceive an all-out attack on the United States. They've never done that in their history, conduct wars that way. And it is so against their national character, and it's so improbable that I do not believe that this is is likely. Is it equally improbable that they will not develop the intention of that Japan had? Japan wanted to create what 
at the time of the beginning of World War II. They called the, I think, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity No, that sphere. they could develop. Do they want to have economic dominance and sort of programmatic dominance over Asia? Well, the Chinese are a Confucian society, and therefore they believe in hierarchy, and therefore they believe that, the, that there usually has to be a ruler, and uh, so it would be not unnatural for them to believe that if their achievements deserve it, as they may, that they should have a dominant position in Asia. If they attempt it, however, uh, they will not find that all that easy because they have powerful neighbors. They have India, uh, they have Russia. Which has crossed the billion mark in population, I believe. The likelihood is that Indian population will exceed that of uh, China. The yeah. question is, can they organize it effectively? But India, in fact, has the technology and the educational background and the civil service to uh, to evolve on paper more rapidly than China. Unfortunately, they have a bureaucracy left by England and trained at the London School of Economics <clears throat> that it's the last socialist bastion. So it is not, they, also their state system is, uh, makes, uh, they, they get very little foreign investment. They should be getting a lot more. But at any rate, they'll run up against India, they'll run up against Japan, and they'll run up against us. Uh, so uh, it is certainly the growing power of China is something we should think about. And uh, But it is not something we can, we should deal with the same way we dealt with the Soviet Union. A truly wise man. I know that on the left there are some who like to think of him as somehow a war criminal. That is utter nonsense. Uh, he, of course, uh, dealt in very, very difficult matters and dealt in some wars, and lives are lost thereby. But uh, I would say that when it came to playing the game of geopolitics in a way that advantaged the United States and maybe even advantaged the ultimate cause of peace and freedom, uh, he he more than adequately uh, performed the assigned duties. And very difficult duties <clears throat> they were, and still are, for anyone who's in the position of Secretary of State. Here's a quickie, um, a fine man, uh, a gracious man. I enjoyed meeting him tremendously, and uh, he had done a book, which was an autobiography, and uh, we talked about it, and this is none other than, well, he just uh, left us uh, literally less than a year ago, about half a year ago, I would say. Uh, but this is a conversation with Mike Wallace way back in 1984 when we talk not so much about his network days, but about his days breaking in in Chicago radio and television. When you um, got out of the showbiz side of broadcasting, and fully, you, you had done various news-oriented features in the past, especially in interview form, but when you committed yourself and got CBS News to commit itself to you, that then I guess you were motivated by that extra need to demonstrate to all the veterans there that you could do it as well or better than they did. Because they were skeptical. Sure. I mean, who was this fellow who was coming in? They had against you also the fact that you had done a cigarette commercial uh -huh. series. Yes. Yeah. But, and I had done, you say you said show business. Actually, I'd started as a radio announcer in Grand Rapids and then Detroit. 
and was a Cunningham news ace along with <laughs> Douglas Edwards at WXYZ in Detroit, and then came here and, among other things, did commercials and did the Tavern Pale Beauty contest and the crime files of Flamand. Did you do that with a French accent? <laughs> no. Was he, he wasn't supposed Lamont? to be a Frenchman, was Lamont? he? Flamand? No. no, 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 no. He I was see. just a, he was a psychological detective. But then, in addition, I did the air edition of the Chicago Sun before I went away to the Navy mm-hmm. here on WJWC, which was a radio station owned by Marshall Field or a partially owned by Marshall Field at that time. And then after the Navy, the air edition of the Chicago <clears throat> Sun-Times, when the name change came, on WMAQ, which was news. Not so much street reporting as reading, or and editing and reading news uh, on the radio. Well, you sure have made up for the lack of an early start in a newsroom and an early start in international journalism by the vast range of things that you have done, and done in great depth. And... Um, I'm not really uh, a black hat, early Mike Wallace. Uh, I tend, so I, I'm not really going to be tough on you. Though my first question was an attempt to imitate that old style. Oh. I've always been. I say this openly and uh, uh, with no uh, uh, no attempt to disguise my admiration. I've always been, indeed, very impressed by your television journalism. Um, the force of the interviewing. I've learned something about interviewing, and I've learned that it's a very hard thing to do. And you get right to it, and you do tend to get people to open up and reveal themselves, and you have great panache for it. Uh, you rush in where ordinary people would fear to tread, I think, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is admirable. And your ability to withstand the annoyance that that sometimes generates in those whom you are interviewing is, I think, testimony not only to your manliness, but in a way to your your inner balance. There, I'm giving a whole... Quick psychological portrait of Mike Wallace as uh, active interview. Yes, I was doing that, which was rather presumptuous, but we did have a fine time. And I have very fond memories of Wallace. In fact, he sent a lovely gift, sort of a little tree, over to us uh, within a few days, which graced the studio, graced the office in the studio. I say a tree, you know, one of those big ficus things, which looks like a tree. And uh, it uh, it lived for five or six years, and it always reminds me of Mike Wallace. We're about to pause for the usual reasons and then directly back. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And uh, we will continue with some of these clips from uh, what I take to be classic Extension 720 programs. Yes, they're classic in part because the person uh, that I'm talking with is... Uh, a celebrity of some kind, uh, but uh, they're not merely celebrities. They're people of great interest and people who made very interesting careers for themselves. Uh, one of them was the great actor Kirk Douglas. Happily, he's still with us, even though as if you follow these things, you've seen it. Uh, he went through a stroke a few years ago, and he's actually <laughs> last year did a one-man show uh, <coughs> in which with the impaired speech of somebody who's recovered from a stroke. He still reviewed all of his life. Earlier, he reviewed much of his life in a fine autobiography, which I'm sure was all uh, of his own doing, of his own writing. He called it, I think, what was it? The the Junk Man's Son or something like that. Kirk Douglas, as lots of people didn't know, is one of our boys. That is to say, a Jewish in background, his parents from Eastern Europe as immigrants, and uh, the original name uh, was 
different. I'm trying to remember it. I can't at the moment. Maybe one of our listeners can and would like to supply it. By the way, the lines are open, 312-591-7200. Anything that comes to mind in relation to what you're hearing, we'd be delighted to hear from you. 312-591-7200. But now, uh, directly to a uh, an excerpt about four and a half minutes from a conversation in 1990 with that iconic American actor, Kirk Douglas. This is by uh, a comment by Andrei Tarkovsky, who's supposed to be one of the great Soviet directors. I guess he left the Soviet Union some years ago and is making films in Europe and perhaps one or two in this country as well. Uh, This is his definition of what a film really is. He says, juxtaposing a person with an environment that is boundless, collating him with a countless number of people passing by close to him and far away, relating a person to the whole world, that is the meaning of cinema. Is it? Well, if he says it is, I think, you know, I would Sounds not... Sounds like a rather elevated... Invention. I would not uh, make it that, uh, that fancy. I think cinema, a book, is telling a story. Everything is telling a story. And that's why, uh, all through my movie making, I always thought they place too much emphasis on the director... It's the European auteur system Mm -hmm. that the Americans have quickly adopted, especially the Directors Guild. You see, if someone writes a very good story for me to make into a movie, I have a chance of making a good movie. I don't think that any director can take a bad story and make it into a good movie. So the most important thing has got to be the the story. So I think uh, I would place the greatest emphasis... In, in movie making, which is a collaborative art. That's why, by the way, writing a novel is so, uh, it's such an ego trip, Milt, because you do it alone. I mean, I am an actor. What does an actor like to do? He wants to play all the parts. When I write Dance with the Devil, I play the women, the children, old ladies, young men, old men. I decide who gets laid, who doesn't. There's one man, Johnson. He was getting, he was getting to me to be such a nudge. I murdered him. I mean, you're doing it by yourself. Then I write the book, and then you read it. It's a one-on-one. And if you don't like it, I have no... It's dangerous. You know, it's like uh, working without a net. Because I can't say, well, the uh, the director did this, or the producer did this, or whatever it is. You're but, doing it all on your own. It just occurs to me, you now face that inevitable attractive conflict of looking forward to this being made into a movie. I would bet that it's probably already been contracted, already been sold. No, no. Uh, Well, to begin with, you know, let me assure you that when I'm writing, it's the last thing I think of that would destroy what I'm trying to do if I thought of what would make this a good movie. But it is a very cinematic story. I can Uh, see this turning into a fine film in well, the right hands with the right actors. Uh, th- there's been interest in it. As a matter of fact, my son, my son Peter said, "Gee, he thinks." I said, "Dad, I think it should be a, uh, I think it should be like a four or six hour television series because uh-huh. it covers so much yeah. time." And he said, "I think Eric, my youngest son, should play the, the young uh, Denison. Then Michael should play the middle part that has all the sexy scenes, mm-hmm. and I should play the older part." So I said, "Well, makes sense." Yes, but I said. Peter, that's a great idea. You could probably get Eric and you could get me, but could you afford Michael? I mean, you'll have a problem. <laughs> Doesn't he give cut rates to his old man? <laughs> I don't know. We, we haven't put that to the test yet. Uh-huh. Um, 
I promised myself I wouldn't ask any of the cliché questions one usually puts to famous actors, but I can't really resist this one. When you think back on the films you've done, we've mentioned one or two that you do value. Which others uh, are you proudest of? For that matter, which ones could you stand to really see again? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the first movie I've forgotten about, that was Strange Love of Martha Ivers, mm-hmm. I thought it was a good movie. With Barbara thought, Stanwyck and Van Heflin. That's right. Well. Yeah. I thought Letter to Three Wives is a good movie. I thought Champion, which I suppose made me a star, was a very, very interesting movie, which holds up very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought working with Willie Wilde on Detective Story, uh, Ace in the Hole, Bad and the Beautiful, Lust for Life. Well, I start to run out of movies that I like. That's about, there may be a few. I think that uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, for that kind of a movie, was a mm-hmm. charming movie. And a, a, a good western was Gunfight at the O.K. Corral. There are a few. Was, yes, it was a fun western. But that's not 80. I made around 80. He made around 80. I imagine if we pressed him, he could have named uh, 78 of them before he finished, or maybe all 80. Um, these are all clips from programs, uh, some of them as much as 15 or 16 years old, uh, and they're all programs that we classify as extension 720 classics. And they are among the podcasts, there are literally hundreds of podcasts of classic programs, which you can uh, uh, listen to, whether you want to scream them or download them, by just going to our website. My hiccup must be forgiven. It's not from food. It's from a cough drop that I've just been uh, slurping at. Um, Our website, wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. wgnradio.com slash extension 720. You also get on that very website, of course, all of our more recent programs, the the last five or six programs on the front page. And then if you just hit the link to the further archive of recent programs. You get all of them going back for months, I should think. And we are delighted that we get a lot of response on that website. Indeed, um, hundreds, thousands, for one program that we did a while ago, we had a quarter of a million downloads, which really stunned me. But uh, the records are kept all uh, electronically, mechanically, and we get... uh, the roster, or we get the rundown on it every month, and uh, 50 or 60,000 downloads for some particular recent program is not at all unusual. But also, the old programs pull a lot of downloads because there are things there that you may want to hear, but you missed originally. Indeed, any if you want to hear any of the conversations uh, from which you've had excerpts tonight, all you need to do is go to wjnradio.com slash extension 720 and You'll find all of these on the front page, as a matter of fact. The next one, this is a familiar older voice from Chicago. People will recognize it instantly, unless they just arrived here three days ago and know nothing of Chicago history and Chicago journalism. A great guy. Here he is. Listen, are you serious about this rib fest thing? Sure, sure. Are you really the best rib maker in all of Chicago? I I have my doubts. Yeah, I probably am. Uh, It's... Yeah, I'd say it, probably at worst I'm one of the three best rib makers in the city. Who are the other two? You're I don't know who they are. Well, you're even counting out Leon, I gather. Yeah, I can I can cook better ribs than Leon, and uh, I don't cook as many. Uh, 
but I go for real quality. Well, how did you come by this art? You made very clear in the few columns you've done on this recently that you know that it's a black art and that black ribs in Chicago are infinitely better than anything turned out by uh, white establishments. Whatever you are, you're not a black man. How, where'd you learn this stuff? Well, uh, I always liked ribs, and uh, but the... Uh, realities of urban life are such that if I get a taste for ribs at uh, 8 o'clock on a Saturday night, I uh, you, you just can't pop into uh, somewhere on 63rd Street um, any more than somebody from 63rd Street uh, is going to pop in uh, to a bar up on the northwest side. So uh, I decided I'd have to learn how to cook my own ribs, and uh, so I've studied them. And uh, rib makers aren't that generous with their secrets, but if you watch what they're doing uh, and ask a few clever questions, you can find out a few tricks. And so after years of long study, uh, I perfected my ribs, and now uh, I'm ready to put them up against anyone's. Well, in one of your recent columns, you give the Royco approach, but you leave some very crucial information out, namely the sauce. Oh, I wouldn't the secret sauce. reveal the secret of my sauce, no. <laughs> and you've invited uh, others who think they can do better ribs than you to engage in a great contest. It will be Mike Royko's Rib Fest to be held in Grant Park, I gather. I'm not sure if it'll be Grant Park. We haven't decided on which park it'll be. Uh, it might be Burnham Park. And uh, judges will judge blind? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, they'll, they'll, I don't know how many contestants there will be the, first, the day after I announced it. Uh, we had several hundred people call and say they wanted to be in it. So it may be, there may be thousands of people out there all with their grills cooking their ribs. It'll create a huge cloud of barbecue <laughs> smoke that'll probably be visible all the way to uh, northern Canada. And, it will uh, contribute to the greenhouse effect. It will yeah, further yeah. densify our atmosphere. Well, I think it'll be nice, it, all this rib smoke being wafted over half the United States. Uh, and uh, we'll have judges judging... Uh, people in groups we can't have one huge judging but when we'll get semi-finalists and then finalists and uh i will go up against the uh this finalist probably because i i'm not going to waste my time in the preliminary judging well no not if you're a world-class no, 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 you should right but i've seated myself among in the finals uh -huh. and uh then it'll be a blind tasting and uh and in all likelihood my ribs will be uh judge the greatest now how are you going to avoid having this thing especially if it's held in grant park labeled and advertised as mayor burns mike royko rib fest uh well as a matter of fact the the, the people who ran uh chicago fest uh are having something some other kind of fest on labor day and uh and called uh i my, my secretary talked to him and they they, they wanted me to bring my rib thing into their fest and uh but i turned it down it's uh, it's just too big for the city to handle mike royko i've just looked up the date and it was uh, uh in 1982 8 1982 uh almost 20 years ago that really uh does move me just a bit he was a fascinating guy uh, grew up on the outside and really a very fine an interesting person once you got to know him. I once went to somebody's afternoon cocktail party. I was late. I arrived, and Mike was standing in the living room talking with uh, all the people there. He, was, he had been talking 
for a while. He went on talking, telling wonderful stories, probably for the next hour, and nobody moved. Everybody was utterly, utterly fascinated. One of the really great spielers of the Western world, whether uh, in a, somebody's living room or down um, uh, at uh, the particular bar that people around here favored in those days, I guess they still do, uh, the Billy Goat, <coughs> or, of course, in his great columns. We're late for an update on the news to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And we're going to take a few, uh, take a phone call, perhaps read an email. Uh, the email is open again. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that is simply extension720 at wgnradio.com. Extension 720 as one word at wgnradio.com. And the phone number, of course, 312-591-7200. Uh, we welcome your calls. Anything in response to what you've been hearing is more than welcome. 312-591-7200. Next up is Gerard. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Milt. I've been listening for probably 25, 30 years. There's no accounting for taste. <laughs> and I'm just thinking of uh, all of my favorite programs that I've heard over the years. And I, uh, David McCullough. The, where when he comes out with a book uh, like John Adams, yes, wonderful fellow, seventy six, Mark Stein, oh yes, just John about the Ryan. brightest man I know, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I could tell when when he's on, you two kind of click together. Would you? Would you have a lot of fun? Yeah. Yes. And uh, when John Drummond comes on, well, you've got great taste. Yes, mm-hmm. he John yeah. is a superb broadcaster. He's a superb person, and he's got. I think the sharpest mind and the most perfect memory of anyone I've ever encountered. He remembers every detail of every criminal case he's ever covered over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And the the news reviews you do uh, are really informative also. Well, thank you. These are very kind comments. I I do appreciate that. I I have uh, recently been looking at the archives, too. Oh, good. the Tony Kurtz one I thought was extremely, uh, really interesting. Did you listen to the whole one? Yes. Yes, I think it's an excellent. He's a very fascinating fellow. That was another one where you could tell you two really got a, uh, got along very well. Well, you know, again, it was a matter. There are all these guys who are members of the tribe. That is, they're Jewish. And Curtis didn't, uh, it was pretty clear that he was Jewish. So, of course, the names are changed to suit uh, the Hollywood identity. But... Uh, he, we spoke about his growing up in, in the Bronx as a Jewish boy. I, was, I grew up as a Jewish boy in Brooklyn. So we had a lot in common, just in terms of sort of common cultural reference, I would say. Yeah. Did, um, I, I think I remember Carl Malden from a long time ago. Was he ever on your show? I think I remember. Carl Malden? Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Very delightful man. Yeah. Uh, he was there only once. He had done a, 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 an autobiography. A very decent, intelligent fellow with some uh, great stories. And, uh, yes, quite a pleasant man, really. Mm-hmm. And I always liked him very much as an actor. I thought he was a, a great secondary actor in loads of Hollywood classic films. Yeah, I always think if he's in a movie, it's probably a good movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> a um, good judgment. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, the last thing I want to do is I remember when 9-11, around 9-11, you had a series of shows that were just riveting, you know, uh-huh. Of course, the country is just... It was a riveting time. Yeah. But that was uh, the way you covered that with uh, experts, you know, was really comforting. Well, thank you very much. 
So keep up the good work. I just really appreciate your show. Well, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Um, and I want to read uh, a brief email that we've got here. Uh, uh, if I have I done something wrong with the phones, I trust not. Um, this says this is from a fellow uh, Bill in Denver, who says you've entertained me and educated me for these past decades. Well, I'm thank you for that, sir. Then he goes on to say, uh, your show has become a part of my life. Excellent, uh, having it become a part of my life too, as a matter of fact. Um, having grown up in Ann Arbor, I do believe that you and I attended the same Louis Armstrong concert in the early 60s. That is conceivable. That is quite conceivable. And then he goes on to say, I wonder, as I listen to the Kirk Douglas interview, uh, what is your favorite and or what interview are you most proud of? Who was it with and what did you talk about? That's an impossible question. There are many, many favorites and a few absolute disasters. Um, but uh, over... 35 years of broadcasting, it's pretty hard to pin one down. Though one of the most memorable, inevitably, is the evening we had with Margaret Thatcher, uh, which was quite a special operation. In fact, uh, her people, as they say, uh, required that we present, have available a, a late dinner or an early supper for Margaret Thatcher and her company, the company consisting of some eight or 12 other people accompanying her. They would pay for it, but we had to arrange it and have it in the studio. And so we did that with um, a particular uh, uh, eat private uh, outfit. It then was. It's now a restaurant uh, and still a very, very expensive one, uh, Les Nomad. In fact, one of the guys who was a chef at that restaurant at that time was our guest on the program only last week when we talked about the food of the future. And they did come over and uh, had prepared an elaborate supper, I guess one would call it, uh, and uh, Mrs. Thatcher would have only the chicken broth and nothing else. But most of the others, including the two or three people from New Scotland Yard, the other time we were visited by Scotland Yard, the first one being uh, those who accompanied... uh, the embattled uh, Salman Rushdie. Uh, but the Scotland Yard guys and others pitched in and enjoyed the meal mightily. But I enjoyed the program mightily. A very fascinating woman uh, with much to say. Uh, so many others, it's hard. As I'm sometimes told I should do a memoir of sorts. Uh, I, I have a title for it, but nothing else. Adventures in the Talk Trade, which would be a play on the famous book by Dylan Thomas, Adventures in the Skate Trade. Uh, enough of all of that. Uh, we're going to pause, take care of some commercials, then right back to the clips. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. We've got a passel of famous Hollywood actors uh, on file and on podcast and on our website. One, another one is Charlton Heston, who's of special interest for many reasons, one of them being that he's a local boy. He was raised in the suburbs of Chicago, went to Northwestern, and uh, visited with us twice, at least. I was quite moved, rather moved, and uh, saddened by his uh, recent passing. Uh, Here is Charlton Heston, a conversation back in 1995, Um, and uh, very, uh, very human stuff. I'll just leave it to you to enjoy it. You and your wife are not exactly like most other actors, it seems to me. Not to mean to, to get into the tired topic of 
whether stable marriages could exist in Hollywood. Obviously, a number do, but lots of them are unstable, mm-hmm. as lots of marriages these days are unstable Indeed. generally. Indeed. But um, the kind of flamboyance and self-indulgence and, uh, uh, sensu- and sensuosity that very often goes with the actor's life mm. seems to have been missing from your life. Or well, I shouldn't say missing, but seems not to have been your style. I guess that's that's true. Um, and our mutual commitment to each other was strong enough to make this possible. Mm-hmm. And um, this is not to say that we had no frictions. I think it's impossible if any kind of a close relationship without frictions and conflicts and scrapings and so on. But as as uh, Lydia said, when uh, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary and we were doing some interviews, cause it, uh, and the interviewer said, now tell me, Lydia, just between us, did you never consider divorce? And Lydia said, divorce, never. Murder, often. <laughs> <laughs> good line. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> You uh, swept down upon her at one crucial moment, and uh, indeed it's a wonderful story, and you tell it in the book, uh, which was the moment when, in fact, she committed herself to you. She was having dinner with another young man. Well, but it, it, she had correctly described it to me as a group dinner before, yeah. and it was not a date by her definition, and because there were six or eight people there. But that made no difference to me. I knew that I was going off to war and very soon. As were the other men. Everybody this would have was. been the year 1942. This would have been 40, 43. 43. Yeah. Late 42 by the, at mm-hmm. that time, yeah. And uh, I had found where she, they were going. She told me where they were going to be eating. And I borrowed a friend's car and drove there, having carefully con- constructed a speech that I was going to win her with. And I saw, entered the restaurant and saw them all sitting there, perfectly innocently, eating. And they turned around and looked at me, somewhat bemused. And I forgot my speech. And fortunately, I forgot the speech because what I said was the kernel of it. I went over and I still find myself clouding a little when I tell this story. And I said, I took her hand and I said, come with me. And she stood up. And, and then that, you knew that she was yours. And that was it. That was my life. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. Shortly after that, you did get married. And shortly after that, they shipped you off to, of all places, the Aleutian Islands. The Aleutians, yes. Where it, uh, you won the Battle of the Aleutians, I guess. Well, no, the Battle of the Aleutians was very brief and actually took place in the uh, in early 42. When the Japanese took Kiska, Atu, I think. And Kiska, yeah, right. but were then driven off. And by... I was in a medium bomb group in B-25s, and but by the time we were deployed in the Aleutians, <laughs> why uh, the B-29s were online out of Saipan and much more better equipped. But if the atom bomb had not been dropped, we would have been moved to Okinawa and taken part in the invasion of the main islands, and I might very well not be sitting here talking yeah. to you. How interesting. The first of a number of points at which we can turn from Charlton Heston, the actor, remembering a long and distinguished career, to Charlton Heston, the occasional public man who's got political and his views based in a reading of contemporary or at least recent history. Well, let's say a concerned citizen, at least. Concerned citizen. 
but, but, but a concerned citizen who talks up. Uh, just recently, of course, with the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, there's been a renewed controversy as to whether that, whether that bombing was really necessary. Oh, I was very much concerned in that. And this began, as you know, with a controversy heated up more than a year ago, about 16 months ago, mm -hmm. at least 16 months. And it consisted of, uh, some uh, revisionist historians on the one side who had designed the Enola Gay exhibition. And at the Smithsonian. At the Smithsonian. Yeah. Uh, the Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian. And uh, practically anyone who had been in the Pacific War in World War II on the other side, and there was just an enormous stink about it. And the director of the Smithsonian uh, tried to defend... Uh, the man who designed the exhibition, and uh, failed to do so. And they kept revising it and changing it and going back more to a straightforward historical account. And the, the nature of the original exhibit, as it, they were planning to mount it, was really rather, some interpreted it as rather anti-American. I certainly did. At the very, the most generous thing you could say about it was that it was strongly revisionist yeah. history and uh, portrayed the Japanese as uh, victims of U.S. imperialism, which is a pretty hard stretch. Yes, it was indeed a hard stretch, and there was much uh, turmoil over that rather uh, odd exhibition at the Smithsonian. But uh, that is a matter for another night. Interesting man. Yes, he was clearly a very conservative fellow, most Hollywood actors are not. He was. Uh, he indeed chaired or was in some high office in the National Rifle Association, but he felt that deeply and with considerable uh, conviction that uh, individual rights needed to be maintained against all possible threats. <clears throat> that was the key to effective and lasting democracy. I do not fully disagree with that view, I must confess. And I was much impressed by the man. Um, we've got a, I guess we've had three f famous Hollywood actors, and the third, uh, we've had others on the program, but three are on the front page of the website at the moment, uh, uh, wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. You can go to that website anytime and download, or for that matter, uh, listen via streaming to any one of these. Uh, interviews, any one of these programs in its full length, or to the hundreds of others that you get to by just uh, clicking on the uh, the link to uh, more classic programs. Um, but here's the last of the three great Hollywood actors I wanted to put before you in brief excerpts tonight. Tony Curtis, who was mentioned by one of the callers. Here's a portion of that interview. I want to get your reactions to a few quotations about Please. the art form with which you've been associated for Please, so long. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard, all you need for a movie is a gun and a girl. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, there, there has to be a line or a tension, some stress factor, even in a comedy. There must be a little piece of information. May I, uh, may I share with you, uh, it was a, a producer named Cy Bartlett, who was a writer as well. And Cy gave me this description. He said, on the screen, a guy comes walking down the street as happy as can be, goes into his house, 
There's his wife and baby. He says to his wife, honey, I got that job. We can pay the rent. We can move out of this neighborhood. I'm really on my way. I'm going to go down and pick up my first check. See you later. With that, he exits and walks down the street. That's the scene. He said, now, let's shoot it again. But this time, let's put a car across the street and the guy is sitting in the car. As this character comes down the street happy, this guy pulls up a rifle and is ready to shoot and puts it down because the guy goes into the house. You play that same scene, have him come out, and as he walks away, this guy picks up his gun and is ready to shoot. Puts another flavor on that whole project. So a film needs more than just a simple, uh, you know, I think it's too simple. Mm. You need a little stress, something that connects one moment to the other. Next quotation. I'm ready. Uh, from William Goldman. You, you must know him. Screenwriter. Yes, yes. A novelist. As far as the filmmaking process is concerned, stars are essentially worthless and absolutely essential. Uh, I don't agree with either one of those statements. Uh, it's being somewhat facetious and he's and trying to be very, cle very clever. Listen, a film needs the actor. It's through his face that you get to feel what is going on. You know, you don't do it with machines or mechanics. You need the human condition. You need the emotion between man, woman, man, man, child, man. You know, they're integral to it. What is somewhat contradictory is here we are as actors fighting for top billing and the biggest dough to get into the movie to play a poor butcher from Brooklyn. To hide ourselves in that part. When in reality we're not hiding, it is us playing those mm -hmm. parts. So that's the contradiction. And maybe that's what he meant by it. To play a poor butcher from Brooklyn. Is that Marty or who, who is that? Well, whoever it was. Whoever. You played uh, a psychotic plumber in Boston. In the Boston Strangler, in the Boston Albert DiSalvo. Absolutely one of the most riveting performances I've ever seen. I thank seen. you so much. Oh, I, tremendous. That meant a lot to me, that performance. And that was a real change of pace in your career. It, it meant a lot to me, that performance, for yeah. no other reason than for myself, you know. I hadn't had an opportunity to ex express myself as fully as that. And that part gave it to me, you know. You prepared it, uh, well, how did you prepare it? I know that you changed your eye color. And that yeah, matters, well, I, I, uh, I prepare in a lot of ways. Uh, I read, excuse me, I read as much as I can about the period of time mm -hmm. and capture the, if you will, the flavor of what goes on at the time. Then I read as much as I can about the character. Uh, when I finally have that, information, then I allow myself to kind of juxtaposition it in the period piece. Because in a 90-minute movie, you're going to try to capture 20 years in someone's life, so you've got to be very, very uh, perceptive and delicate on what, how you play it. That's why any actor playing, if you took 10 actors to play one film, they'd all play it differently. That's the actor's choice. And so that is key to the project of playing. Albert DiSalvo was like that for me, you know. I read as much as I could about the man. I read all of the trial uh, documents and papers, read as much about his life as possible, and put together kind of a concept of what I felt the man was like. I didn't look like him, but I tried to affect not the look of him, not like trying to be Cary Grant, but another version. So I, I changed the shape of my nose. I wore brown contact lenses. I had my hair uh, permed up very curly. I put on about 12, 15 pounds, wore weights around my waist, put these big army shoes on, so my whole look was different. And I tell you, Milt, it was astounding for me. I'd go by a mirror or a reflection of myself on the set, and I'd look in, and this adorable, good-looking, blue-eyed 
fellow was not there anymore. There was this uh, guy I never even saw. That was bizarre for me. Are, are you one of those actors who's reached by the role he plays and somewhat transformed rarely by the role? Uh, for that moment, I am. But, you know, I don't delude myself with that acting nonsense. I'm not being unkind now. That schooling of actors. Uh, You're not a method actor. Uh, uh, to be. You have to be what you are representing at that moment. You cannot put your mind in such an elevated place that if you've got to flirt with this girl, you can't say, well, I, my mother, when she was... When I was in her arms, I felt this feeling for her. If I can recapture that feeling, nonsense. That's the, that, that's the Strasbourg that's, method, that's right? That's Strasbourg, Stanislavski, yeah. to recall memories and images of other time. Yeah. Well, if you're a practicing actor and a professional, uh, you don't need all of that uh, mishagas. You know, you can come right to the heart of the subject. It's interesting that uh, we made some reference there to the film Marty with Ernest Borgnine who I just learned today passed away yesterday at the advanced age of 95. Um, I never met him, but I did uh, much appreciate uh, his many performances and certainly his performance in that classic film. We are about to pause for um, an update on the news. Before that, though, let me say we're very open to further phone calls. Anything you want to opine in response to anything you've heard, We'd be delighted to hear from you. Or if you've got questions about our website and the podcasts available to you there, you can also uh, query us about that. Uh, and the number, 312-591-7200. And for email, extension 720 at com. So, directly back to your queries and also some more clips that we, we've got waiting for you. But first... To the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. We'd be pleased to have uh, any calls you want to make responding to what you've been hearing on this program tonight. And here is one such call, uh, and Ken joins us. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Thank you. I've enjoyed your show for 30 years, off and on. I lived in central Illinois for part of that, so some nights I'd get you and some nights I wouldn't, depending on the ionosphere. Well, you know, now wherever you lived in the world, you can get us on uh, the Internet. On the Internet. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I listened to your, 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 your interview with Cosell, yeah. I was reminded of an earlier, uh, earlier statements by him where he... Uh, very controversially stood up for uh, Cassius Clay's conversion to mm -hmm. uh, uh, the black Muslim faith of Eliza Muhammad. Which, yes, he did, uh, yeah. Which I believe uh, Cosell's stand for religious liberty was very laudable. Uh, Cosell later uh, sort of lionized Muhammad Ali for standing up to Lyndon Johnson on... Uh, Ali's draft case, where Ali claimed to be a black Muslim minister. Um, I think uh, Max Melling standing up to Hitler by hiding two Jewish boys uh, during Kristallnacht was much more heroic than uh, Muhammad Ali standing up to LBJ. I've never heard that story about Schmeling. Oh, it's common knowledge. I, Is I read it? a good book on... Uh, on uh, Righteous Gentiles about 20 years ago. Is that uh, so? That's interesting. 
You know, yeah. I, I literally once met Max Schmeller. Uh, not, yeah. no. he didn't come on this program. <clears throat> it was before I ever started doing this program, but it was on the Irv Cups in it program. A friend of mine was to appear on that one night and asked me to come over with him. <clears throat> and I did. And one of the guests was Max Schmeling. And when my friend, who was a political activist of sorts, tried to put a question to Schmeling, he said, I am interested only in the sport. <laughs> he refused to talk about any politics, national or international. But uh, I quite agree with that. Cosell had a strong uh, admiration for and a strong, made a very strong endorsement of Cassius Clay as he became Muhammad Ali, and he remained uh, quite proud of his friendship with Muhammad Ali. Well, Schmeling was, uh, you know, uh, punished by deployment to the Russian front, and uh, I think he was was later rewarded by God for living 99 years. Yeah, he did live a long time, I remember that. I story on on, on his his actions on Crystal Rock. Yes, well, I must check that out. I'm, I'm sure that you're right, if you remember it that way. I just had never heard that, and that uh, speaks very well for him, of course. Thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you, and thank you for 30 years of great programming. Well, it's been my pleasure. Really, it has been. Uh, and we will go now, speaking of sport, uh, we'll go to uh, a fascinating man. Uh, I've much enjoyed meeting him, uh, and... Uh, Much more should be known about him. One of the great stars of the so-called Negro Leagues, uh, Buck O'Neill. And I talked with him way back in 1996. Here is uh, about four minutes of that conversation. All of your playing days were played not in what we call the majors, but rather in the Negro Leagues. That's right, the Negro Leagues. And I played some in Mexico, some in uh, Cuba. Mm -hmm. But you say that... You don't really deeply regret that the barrier, that dreadful barrier that uh, that obtained for a long time in all American organized sport, the barrier between black and white, that uh, you don't regret and mourn the fact that you came too soon, but rather that you were right on time. I, 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 I regret the segregation, yes, and I regret well, that the, the only reason I played Negro League Baseball... It was because I was black. I, I, I regret those things. But as far as, uh, as I had a wonderful career in Negro League Baseball. I had a, had, uh, a wonderful time. And because it was great. I'm playing with, you know, I'm playing with and against some of the best athletes in the world. And they just happen to have been black. And occasionally when they put together special exhibition games from mm-hmm. some of the stars, well, all stars from the black leagues and all stars from the white leagues, yeah. usually... The Negro League guys beat them, didn't they? Yeah, we did most of the time, and and I tell you why. Now, it wasn't a case that it wasn't that we were better than the major league ball players, but the major league ball players were really playing an exhibition game, and the world said, I mean, the the white ball players, the world said the major league was the best ball ball players in the world, yeah. so they didn't have anything to prove, but we did. We wanted to prove to the world that we were good enough to play in the Major League. So what we did, we ran a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> and we slid a little harder. You gave, we, it, you gave it more stre- moxie than they We did, stretched yeah. the singles into doubles, the doubles and uh-huh. the triples. Uh-huh. We stole home base. We did these things. Wherein uh, a Major League ball player, I don't think he would, he, he wouldn't 
uh, slide as hard as, as because what you say you're going to twist your ankle, you're going to do that in playing an exhibition ball game. No, who, they wouldn't. Who are some of the great pitchers that you hit off during those exhibition games? Dizzy Dean, uh, Bobby Feller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hit against Lefty Grove. I've hit against the, uh, 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 some outstanding pitchers, really. And they had, they had great stuff. And uh, the the uh, down on Bobby Feller's team, he had practically all of that uh, that that pitching staff from Cleveland there one time. Oh, they were outstanding. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, when the Dodgers. Oh, you were, did. When the Dodgers were still in New York, and as uh-huh. a kid, I rooted for Leo DeRocher's Dodgers. Uh-huh. And then I come to Chicago, and there's DeRocher managing the Cubs, That's and right. the star of the team. In those days, the one who everybody was most enthusiastic for mm-hmm. was Ernie Banks. Of course, of course. Who and you I, brought into the game? Yeah, I signed Ernie Banks. I signed him a couple of times. Yeah, I signed him with the, with the Kansas City Monarchs, and then I signed him here. I wasn't working for the Cubs at the time because this was in nineteen uh, uh, when it came up in nineteen fifty three to the Cubs, and uh, we played an our our East West game at Comiskey Park. Oh, God, I had drawn the people, yeah. and uh, they really liked him. Uh, the Cubs, they had scouted him, and they liked him. And so Tom Beard, who owned the team, said, bring Ernie out. That was Monday morning, and the Cubs going to sign him. With Matthews were the uh, head of the scouting at the time. He said, well, and Buck, say, Tom's going to sell this team soon, and you know yo, that kind of ball is just about over. And when it's finished, I want you to come here and start scouting for the Chicago Cubs. I said, I'd like that. He said, since you're going to do that, why don't you sign Ernie to this contract? So I signed Ernie to a Cub contract. What an interesting sidelight to the career of Ernie uh, Banks and, for that matter, to the story of the Cubs. Uh, They could use a few (laughs) equivalents of Ernie Banks once again, though one has to acknowledge they're doing better in the last few weeks than they have done earlier this season. Uh, and that's all I've got to say about uh, the Cubs. Uh, we've got lots of people who really understand it all. Uh, at this station, I'm not one of them. Uh, but I do wish that they could redeem their record and somehow pull off something more spectacular this year than they have in recent years. We are about to pause the last round of commercials, then right back. I'm looking for some more good calls. Get them in right now, if you would. Any commentary you've got about what you've heard or anything relating to We'd be delighted to hear from you at 312-591-7200. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return and uh, we'll go back to the clips from uh, some of the classic programs that you find on the front page of our website. Our website, again, is to be found at wgnradio.com forward slash extension 720. And what you get there are podcasts for all the recent programs, the last five or six of them, and then they rotate to back pages, but they're still there. There are dozens and dozens, or is it hundreds, of uh, recent, fairly recent programs available for your downloading or your streaming. And then you get also two different batches of so-called classic Extension 720 programs. And there are hundreds of those on the back pages, again, available quickly with a link. Um, And the ones that you're hearing tonight are all from 
uh, classics on the front page. Some of them will rotate to back pages fairly soon, I suppose. But right now, you can hear more of any one of these if you simply go to the front page, wgnradio.com slash extension 720, and uh, download the one you're interested in. Here's one that I found fascinating to listen to again. I hadn't listened to it in some time. It uh, is way back a number of years ago. Three of the great cartoonists of American journalism joined one night to talk about the art of political cartooning. They are Jack Higgins, who's still very much the cartoonist over at the Sun-Times, and uh, Dick Loker, who was the cartoonist for the Chicago Tribune. Scott Stantis now plays that role, and he's been a rather frequent guest on this program. Though Dick Loker still does occasional cartoons, and he still does the drawing of Dick Tracy, which he's done for many years after Chester Gould the originator of Dick Tracy, passed on or retired. It went to Dick Loker, who had been his assistant, I guess, way back. And in the middle of this conversation, a great cartoonist, the cartoonist at the time for the Washington Post, Herb Block, who was known in the trade and who signed himself as if his two names were one name, Herb Block. And here are Higgins, Herb Block, and Loker discussing how you lampoon an American president. You've all skewered all sorts of public figures. You've occasionally probably paid them compliments, too. But when it comes to American presidents, who was the first president on whose case you got? Well, let's see. Uh, Herbert Hoover well, himself? Uh, yeah, I did some about Hoover. I wouldn't say they were tough. The stuff I was doing for the Chicago News was a pretty light yeah. editorial cartoon. Did you ever make any trouble for Roosevelt, or did, were you too oh, fond I of think I did some stuff in the kidding some of the alphabet agencies or the stuff about the... The, the Supreme Court packing thing, mm-hmm. they were not too tough. I thought Roosevelt was a good president. Yeah, yeah. And I thought Truman was, uh, was was great. But they've all come in for criticism one time or another. I think all of us have, don't you? Whoever is I don't think any, anybody escapes. I don't yeah. think anybody does. And even if you think the president is doing a good job, you know, there'd be something you think <laughs> they could do more of. Exactly. Are the guys in Congress that are opposing them? You know? yeah. Yeah. To get agitated. But, yeah. <laughs> but her, the first one you really landed on with any uh, real heaviness was I gather Eisenhower? Is that right? Uh, yeah, Eisenhower. I, I don't. I, I guess so. I, I didn't feel that I'd landed on him too much, but um, there, there were two things. You know, he was a, a tremendously popular president, a war hero, naturally, and all that. But he, um, he two two of the great issues that concerned me were one one was McCarthyism, and I didn't mm-hmm. think he was good on that. And you know, I think he waited to be attacked almost personally. And uh, the other one was desegregation, where I think he. Actually lobbied uh, some of the Supreme Court justices to you know go easy before the Brown versus Board of Education thing, and talked about you can't change the hearts of men. And gee, uh, in the meantime, it, this um, massive resistance campaign built up, and it was three years before he sent troops to Little Rock only to prevent rioting. You know, and I and I thought those were two very important domestic issues. I didn't think he was good on them. You know, you mentioned McCarthy and McCarthyism. Yeah. About two weeks ago, uh, Margaret Thatcher was here, and one. A point I made to her was uh, there is a general governmental philosophy known as Thatcherism, but there isn't any uh, uh, there isn't any ism named for any of your predecessors. Uh, and how do you account for that? I mean, that's just a way of getting into something. And it occurs to me that McCarthyism, I learned from your book, uh, Herblock, A Cartoonist Life, is a designation of a spirit that was abroad in the land, and you are responsible for that designation, apparently. Yeah, but but only by accident, really. I had this Tower of Tar Barrels that 
some of the Republicans wanted the elephant to stand on. And, uh, you know, what do you label the thing? And it isn't McCarthy himself. And you say, McCarthy tactics, you know, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, McCarthyism. And, you know, that'll, it's, that'll it's a great do. cartoon. It's reproduced in this book, as are some 200 cartoons. And I'm looking for it right now, but I can't find it. But there's another McCarthy cartoon, which I'm handing at the moment to Jack Higgins. And he can describe it and give us an, ar- an artist's appreciation of it. Uh, this one I'm a little bit unfamiliar with. Maybe you can help me. With uh, all right. This here. is this is McCarthy holding in his. Uh, he's uh, got in one hand a fake letter, in another hand a doctored photo, which he, he used both of these things in fake numbers, and they're kind of burning, going up in smoke, and uh, and kind of burning him, burning his fingers, and he's saying this favorite expression of his, "I have here in my hand." You yeah. Know, because he started off yeah. saying, "I have here in my hand." Yeah. Names of two hundred and five communists in the State Department. <laughs> that kind of. Thing. You do a pretty good imitation, sound-wise. <laughs> <laughs> he had this metallic voice, though. He did. It was really kind of frightening. Yeah. You know? It was metallic. Yeah. 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 But these are blockisms, aren't they? Did you go after McCarthy, or is that a little bit before your time, Dave? No, I didn't have a chance. No. Nixon Who's, was the first one. Nixon is the first man you went after in a serious way. Yeah. What do you remember doing to Richard Nixon? Well, you know, he uh, he ended the Vietnam War in 74. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we had a convention in Washington at that time. And uh, we were supposed to have our convention at the Watergate, but it was booked. We couldn't get in. <laughs> and the convention was at the exact same time as the break-in. And, of course, the Washington Post came out with the with the headlines, break-in at the Watergate. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the cartoonist says, we didn't do it. We weren't there. <laughs> but after that, the floodgates opened up, and we had a lot of fun with that. I mean, oh, you couldn't give a cartoonist a better uh, a subject than Watergate. It was an incredible thing. And then, of course, Agnew, uh, uh, he was another uh, yeah. co-pilot yeah. of this whole scenario. What, what are some of the great Watergate cartoons, whether done by somebody at this table or by anybody else? What well, stand I, out? Uh, what, I had, you know, Nixon and the tapes. Yeah. You know, the, the missing segment, the 13... Uh, mm-hmm. was it 18, 18 and a half minute gap. 18 and a half yeah. minute gap. And uh, they asked Rose... Uh, I did a cartoon, and Rosemary Wood was in court. And yeah. And yeah. said, uh, could you... Uh, could you tell us, uh, could you do the 18 and a half minute gap? And she says, well, if you t- give me the words, I'll see if I can home. <laughs> uh, Dick Loker is a wonderful guy. Um, we had a great night one night uh, when Dick was here together with, uh, I forget his name. His first name was Tracy. He named a grandson of Chester Gould, who originated Dick Tracy. Uh, and one or two other people, and we it was an evening devoted to Dick Tracy, of all things. Um, we've got just one more cut coming up. I'll get out of the way very quickly so that we can play it. This is uh, one of the great journalists and a very, very interesting man, Pete Hamill, who for a while was the editor of the New York Daily News uh, and did a great deal else. Uh, let me just get out of the way. In fact, this will probably take us to the very end of the program, so um, hang in there, and we'll be with you again tomorrow night at 10. Let's hear something. Choose, yeah, choose this selection. is from a section. It's right after the war, and the the, uh, the boy that I was has seen BJ Day, VE yeah. Day, various celebrations, etc., and had sampled, you know, the life and understood what was going on. And so the pattern had begun. The template was cut. There was a celebration, and you got drunk. There was a victory, and you got drunk. It didn't matter if other people saw you; they were doing the same thing. So if you were a man, there was nothing to hide. Part of being a man was to drink. I was 10 years old that summer of the end of the war, but I was learning the ways of the world. In the lot on 12th Street, we still played war games, using shovels to dig foxholes and trenches. We mowed down Japanese holdouts with rifles made from broom handles, 
or guns shaped from the corners of orange crates. We stuffed tin cans with stones and used them as hand grenades, usually aimed at cats. We even played a game called Concentration Camp, made up of jailers and the pursued, sprinkling our talk with German words learned from comic books and movies, Achtung and Schweinhund. I played those games with all the other kids, but then one rainy Sunday afternoon I went to the RKO Prospect to catch a double bill and saw for the first time the newsreels from Buchenwald. Grizzled American soldiers were at the edge of the camp, some of them weeping, and just past them beyond the barbed wire were men and women and children in striped pajamas, unable to move, full of fear, staring with eyes that couldn't be seen. Some were lying on tiers of bunks too close to death to ask for help, their long skeletal hands limply hanging to the floor. Their arms were tattooed with numbers. Their heads were shaven. They looked like zombies I'd seen in a movie at the Minerva Theater. This was what Hitler had left behind after killing himself in the bunker. These silvery-gray images of European horror. These bony heaps that once had been human. I tried to get someone to answer my questions. How did this happen? Who did this? But my father only said, that son of a bitch Hitler... And my mother said, that terrible bigot. And in school, there was no answer at all. For weeks, I read the newspaper stories about the camps and stared at the photographs in life that I found on the racks in Senyu's candy store. And there were no answers. I dreamed of the camps, of slush-eyed men in black SS uniforms, herding us from boxcars into barracks, and finally to showers where gas hissed from the nozzles on the ceiling. In one repeated dream, I was fighting, struggling, pushing at the skeletal men, trying to get out of the packed showers, trying to reach the door to get to Brooklyn, to safety, to my mother and father, and at least once, I woke up screaming. My mother came in and asked what the matter was, and I cried and talked about the concentration camps and the gas and the barbed wire, and she crooned to me, Don't worry now, don't worry anymore, don't worry, Peter, the war is over. After that trip to the prospect, I never played concentration camp again. Mm. Have you ever heard the story about the first group of American soldiers into Buchenwald and the lieutenant who went wild? No. Some lieutenant, uh, horrified by what he saw, completely unprepared for it, and the German guards, some of them done up spiffily in their uniforms, expecting to uh, ingratiate themselves with the Americans who they were anticipating. Uh making their representations or excuses, and this one guy pulls out his machine gun, lines them all up, and screams at them and shoots them dead. Good. Uh, kills about 30 or 40 Germans on the spot, and he's finally pulled out of the jeep where he had the gun or whatever, and he's pacified. But no one ever reports him, and no action again is taken against him. 